Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Amen. Good morning. If you have a Bible, open it to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 as we continue to work our way through this really beautiful, encouraging New Testament letter from Paul to a church in Thessalonica. If you don't have a Bible, we'd love for you to use, as we always say every Sunday, one of the Bibles in the chair racks in front of you. If you don't own a Bible, keep that Bible as your own. If you're not used to looking up scriptures in the Bible, you can find 1 Thessalonians 4 on page 776 or 987 of the Bible that's in the chair in front of you. We're going to be working our way through the second half of the fourth chapter, starting in verse 9. And through the end, verse 18, this text is really two paragraphs, and it may seem kind of like they're unconnected. One is where Paul is encouraging the uh, the church there to to uh, very specifically how they're supposed to live amongst the culture, to work hard and and not be dependent on anybody, so that they can be a good witness for the gospel. And then in verse 13, he transitions into teaching about the Lord's return and the resurrection of Christians. So it it may seem like those two paragraphs are unconnected and we're just kind of putting them together. But really, at the end, I think we'll see how really the resurrection, what Paul is speaking about, the return of Christ, really points us back to this life and forward to the next. So um, in just a second, I'm going to read and pray and then we'll work our way back through it. And I think there's four truths that I want us to see and a few implications. But before we do that, let me mention that this is one of those texts in the Bible that I just love because it's so spectacular, it just smashes. It takes a wrecking ball to cultural Christianity. And what do I mean by by cultural Christianity? I mean sort of that nominal uh, view of the Bible and of living for Christ that looks wrongly, I think, at the Bible as a mere ethical guide and a, and a sort of moral prescription on how you should live life. And we sometimes approach wrongly, I think people in our culture approach Christianity as if it is an option amongst many religious options on how we should live better in this life. Well, this text takes a, takes a bulldozer to that concept because it is, it is actually pushing us beyond this life to the great reality of the future forever and ever with the spectacular truth that God who became man allowed himself to be crucified by his creation, rose again from the dead, and now promises to return and to raise from the dead all those who have ever trusted in him. Friends, that is strange. <laughs> And I think we need to embrace that and love that. In fact, a, uh, a philosopher back in the early 1900s said, he said that truth must necessarily be stranger than fiction. Because fiction is just a, it's a creation of the human mind. But truth that exists outside of our minds, the reality of who God is, is so spectacular and so wonderful that it belies, it, 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 it betrays our imagination, it's so good. And so I want us to see this, to dig into this, to realize that what we believe is supernatural. So let me read and then pray and then we'll work back through. First Thessalonians chapter 4, 
starting in verse 9. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. I think that's beautiful. It's like when you become a Christian, you are born again, you're now, you were once dead, now you're alive, and there's all these beautiful truths, especially in Romans 8, where the Spirit of Christ resides in you. Now the Holy Spirit leads us. So you've been taught yourselves by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more, and to aspire to live quietly, and to mind your own affairs. Whoa, that's in the Bible. And to, and to mind your own business. Okay. <laughs> Let me go back. And to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you. Verse 12. So that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. So Paul is giving them instruction to live in this way that they would posture themselves to commend the gospel before outsiders so that they would see Christ in them and Lord willing turn and trust in him. Now he transitions to, in verse 13, speaking about the coming of the Lord. So remember what's happened is Paul was only able to be with the Thessalonians for about a month before the disturbance arose because of preaching. And he fled Thessalonica to go on to preach at other cities. And he was concerned that they, uh, because he didn't get a chance to teach them all that he wanted to teach them, um, he was concerned that they were misunderstanding some things. And one of the things that they were misunderstanding was that they, because Paul didn't have time to teach them about the second coming of Jesus fully and the implications of that, there were people in the church that were upset about their friends and family who were Christians who had died. And they were thinking that those who had died, he's going to refer to them as those who have gone to sleep. It's just kind of a a, a Pauline or Paul's way of saying death. These Thessalonians were concerned that those that have died before Jesus returns are going to miss out somehow on Jesus' second coming. So he's teaching them, no, that's not the case. There's this resurrection, and he goes on to teach them. So let's read verse 13. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep. So again, that's, they're not taking a nap. It means that they have died. That you may not grieve as those who do not have hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. What a, be- what a beautiful text. All right, let's pray and ask the Lord to help us. Father, we thank you for your word. I pray that you would help believers in this room to see and savor the beauty, the majesty, the spectacular promise of the gospel and the resurrection. And that we would be emboldened by it to 
fight sin and to lean forward into eternity. And I pray that unbelievers that are in this room with us this morning, that Lord, by your sovereign mercy, by your kind and free grace, that you would give them the very thing that you require of them that they can't bring to the table, that you would give them faith, that you would give them life so that they can see you and they can savor Jesus and they can turn from their sin and turn from trusting in themselves and put their hope in Christ. Lord, I pray that you would do these things for your glory and for our joy. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, four truths that I think are at least either outright stated or implied and embedded in, in this text. These four truths are about the resurrection. Because of Jesus' resurrection, he speaks that he will come again and he will resurrect his people. So we're going to look at four truths and then consider a few implications of these truths. The first truth that I think is implied in this text is that, one, when Christians die before Jesus returns, their bodies go to the grave and their souls go immediately to be with the Lord. So, just kind of follow what Paul is saying here. He's speaking to people who are concerned about their believing friends or relatives who are died, who are now in the grave. And Paul, in this paragraph, is writing them to them to tell them that they are at no disadvantage because Jesus is coming again to raise all Christians and to unite their bodies with their soul and we will live with him forever in a real, physical, glorified existence. So implied in that is that when we die... Our bodies, clearly we know this, go into the grave. So that brings up the question, well then, how is it? Do we go immediately to heaven? What, what's the state of the Christian who is asleep, as Paul puts it, or dead? He, he says that in, in Philippians chapter 1, verse 21 through 23, it sheds a little bit of light on this to, to, to encourage us that when we die, our bodies go into the grave. But our spirits, our souls, and I'm using those words uh, really synonymously, go to be with the Lord. Listen to what Paul says in Philippians chapter 1, verse 21 and through 23. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor to me. Yet, which shall I choose? I cannot tell. I'm hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ. And that is far better. So in other words, he's saying there's part of me that just wants to kind of cash in on this mug and die. Because I'm tired of getting beat by the Romans. And in fact, when he wrote Philippians, he was in a, in a kind of a halfway house Roman prison. And so he's saying, I want to depart. And what is departing? It means to die. And what does it mean to depart? It means for Paul to be with Christ. He writes similarly to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 6 through 9. Listen to this. He says, So we are always of good courage. For we know that while we are at home in the body... We are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage. And we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please God. So he says there in verse 7, that to be away from the body is to be at home with the Lord. So when Christians die, their bodies go into the ground and their souls go immediately to be with the Lord. And this is what theologians over the centuries have called the intermediate state. It's, uh, it's heaven. We are with Christ. But Randy Alcorn in his very helpful book titled 
uh, heaven. I believe we sell it in the resource room. Really wonderful meditation on, on heaven. It calls this intermediate state, I think, helpfully the present heaven. So if we were to die today and we're trusting in Christ, our bodies would go into the ground and our soul, our spirit, would immediately go to be with the Lord. But what's pointed to later on in the text that we just read in 1 Thessalonians 4 is this future day when Jesus will return and there will be this reuniting, this resurrection of the body that goes into the ground with our spirits and we will be a glorified person just like Jesus forever and ever and ever. So we're in a sort of temporary intermediate state before that final full glorification of the Christian happens sometime in the future. So that's the truth that I want you to see there, number one, in this text, it's implied that when Christians die, their bodies go to the grave and their souls go to be with the Lord. Truth number two in this text that we clearly see and should be encouraged by is that Jesus is coming again to gather his people and to judge unbelievers. In fact, I think this is the main text, the main point of this text. That Jesus is coming again. And when he comes again, he's going to do spectacular things, which we'll get to in a second. But when he comes again, he will finally and fully vanquish all sin, all death, all rebellion, all evil. And because of that, Paul says, we should encourage one another with these words. We could spend a lot of time reading scriptures in the New Testament where Paul promises the return of Jesus to come and judge the living and the dead. At the beginning of the book of Acts, we see the disciples are there and Jesus is, is uh, he's ascending into heaven, his ascension. Which, by the way, at the end of Matthew, it's so encouraging to me, Jesus has risen from the dead to his disciples for about 40 days and over five, about 500 people. And as he is offering them the great commission and about to ascend into heaven, it says that some of his followers believed and some doubted. <laughs> I'm strangely encouraged by that, right? That you can walk with Jesus for three years, see so many miracles that John says at the end of his gospel that we couldn't fill, the world couldn't contain all the books that we, we would have to write to write down all that he did. He rises from the grave. He is alive for 40 days. He, he tells Thomas to put his hand in his hand and his hand in his side. And there's still some guys at the end of it who are like, ah, I don't know. What does that tell me, friends? That tells me that believing in Jesus and trusting in Christ is not something that ultimately I can figure out as the accumulation of empirical evidence, but it is a gift. It's something that God must open our dead eyes to see. It is the glory of sovereign grace. It's the majesty of the God who is in complete control. So I'm, I'm strangely encouraged by that because when I'm doubting and when I feel like I can't figure things out, I realize that the fact that I have seen Jesus, that I'm trusting in Him, and that any Christian that's ever done that, it's not because we were smarter or because it's based on my intelligence. It's because God opened up my blind eyes to see Jesus. But I digress. I don't know why I brought that up. Oh, in Acts chapter 1. <laughs> Jesus ascends and the angels say, stop gazing into heaven. 
this same Jesus will return again. And then the rest of the New Testament is this pointing towards this Jesus who will come back and return and judge the living and the dead. Jesus is coming again. This should be an encouragement for believers and it should be very sobering for you if you are not trusting in Christ. Now remember, trusting in Christ is not to have every T crossed and I dotted and every little piece of evidence figured out. Remember what Paul said? We just read it in 2 Corinthians 5. We walk by faith, not by sight. So implicit in faith is not having everything figured out, not having every question answered. But we, in the midst of doubt, in the midst of our own sin, we see Jesus and we put our hope and trust in him. And this is telling us that we must do that because Jesus is coming again and he will resurrect his people and he will judge unbelievers. Listen to what Paul writes in 2 Thessalonians about the return of Jesus. Just one book over. He writes another letter to the Thessalonians. Listen to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 3. He says, We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly. And the love of every one of you for another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. Verse 5, listen to this. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who believe because our testimony to you is believed. So Paul is teaching again in his second letter about when Jesus comes again. And that when is when Jesus comes again, he will gather his people and resurrect them as we'll read in a moment. And he will judge those who do not believe. Friends, that, that's just another reminder that there are only two types of people in this world. There aren't black people and white people and brown people and other types of people. There aren't Americans and everybody else. There are not Europeans and Asians. There are those that are in Christ and those that are outside of Christ. Where are you? When you read this text, where are you? Jesus is coming again to judge the living and the dead. And you may think because maybe you've bought into some liberal argument, oh, that's the, you know, that's Paul, and he was kind of an angry theologian. He had a little axe to grind. But we don't hear Jesus kind of, you know, he's like, you know, he's like the European soccer player with the flowing hair. He's like Andy Gibb, just hugging babies and kissing people, you know. Jesus doesn't speak about judgment, right? No, Jesus actually does speak about judgment a lot. Listen to what Jesus says in John chapter 3, verse 36. He says, he says in John 3, 36, Whoever believes in the Son 
Actually, this is John speaking about Jesus. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. So, this clear teaching that Paul is orienting the church at is that Jesus is coming again. And when he comes again, he will gather his people. And if you are in Christ, you will be resurrected and your future will be glorious and forever to reign with him. And if you are outside of Christ, you will be judged and God will inflict vengeance on you and God will be glorified by leaving you rightly outside of his presence forever and ever and ever. Now, I think when I think about this, there's different categories of people that I've just come across as a pastor over the years about people who don't believe. Um, I, I think certainly there's other categories. There's, there's certainly atheists and people who have made a, who've made a conscious decision to believe that there is no God. But I, I think that's not actually most people. As I've dealt pastorally for the past decade or so with people that are not trusting in Christ, I've, I've kind, of, kind of developed some categories in my mind of people who don't consider themselves Christians or maybe do and are self-deceived. The, the first category is people that think that their sins are too great. It's kind of a woes me, you know, you don't know what I've done. I really want to trust in Christ. Like maybe I grew up in the church, but I veered off when I was in college. And, you know, you don't, you don't, you don't know all that I've done. Friend, if, if that's you, think about what you're really saying. You're saying, you know, I know Jesus, the Son of God, the eternal, holy, second person of the Trinity, became a man and lived a perfect life laid down his perfect sacrifice on the cross and his perfection and his eternal holiness was enough to uh, atone for the sins of all the world and he rose again in victory. I mean, I believe all that. But you know, you don't, you don't know what I've done. I mean, think about that. It's like you're saying, you know, Jesus, you're, what you've done is powerful enough for everybody else, but me, my, my stuff. I mean, think about the, the ego of that sort of subconscious perspective. It's like you are saying that your, your little sin trumps the work of the Son of God on the cross? Really? I mean, it kind of comes across as false humility, right? Like, oh, you don't, oh I'm just too bad. No, you're, you're too prideful. You're too self-centered. You're, you, you think too much of yourself. Because Jesus died. He, he is mighty to save. He delights in bringing the unrighteous to him. So that's, that's one category. If that's you, man, turn away from your, 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 your self-centered little coveting of the badness of your sin. The other category of people that I see occasionally that, that are unbelieving is that they maybe grew up in the church and they're people that are, you know, they're kind of go-getters and they, they really expect a lot of themselves and others. And they look around at kind of a jacked-up church. Maybe they had a bad church experience. Maybe something went wrong in the church that they grew up in or they used to attend and they have become discouraged by the state of the church and the relative lack of sanctification that they see in other Christians. And it's caused them to be cynical and calloused about whether or not God is really at work. Again, friends, to you, I would say, if that's your heart, see, Look at what you're doing. You are putting yourself in the place of judgment over 
everybody else and what God is doing in their lives. Don't, don't put yourself in that, really that haughty place, that prideful position to think about what God's plan for people in this church may be. Yes, we can look around the world, we can look around the church, I can look at my own life, I can look at this church, and at times I can be discouraged, and I can just, remember I told you a couple weeks ago, sometimes I get so discouraged, I just want to sit in my office, turn out the lights, get a dozen Krispy Kreme, and just gorge myself. Right? And just have a little pity party, because nobody's doing what I want them to do. You know? I'm jacked up, you're jacked up, everything's not like it should be. Let's just stuff our face and get high on sugar. And if you let that run, like if you let that go, you can all of a sudden become kind of like the judge and jury. And you're just mad at other Christians and you're mad at God. And before you know it, it will so callous your heart that you are not trusting in Christ. Ah, friend, let your heart be warmed by the sovereign God who's redeeming a people. I mean, read the Old Testament. Read the train wreck of the patriarchs in Genesis and be encouraged that God brings his people safely home. And then I think in our culture, thirdly, and I'll get off of this, I know it's getting uncomfortable to talk about people that are still, because this may be some of you, is I think there are many people that consider themselves Christians, but they're not truly, they're self-deceived because we live in a culture that waters down the gospel and we live in a church culture that is oftentimes dominated by the ego of pastors who just want to fill sanctuaries and will tell people just whatever they want. And so people kind of come and flock and the pastor will preach some self-help message and at the end of the thing he'll say, anybody that wants to be saved, raise your hand and then they just slap a Christian tag on them and make them feel like they're okay with God when they haven't truly repented of their sins and, and trusted in Christ and are following him as the Lord of their life. And so many people think that they're all right with God but they're not because they're just sort of in a, a little self-esteem society rather than a band of pardoned rebels who are following the king. And Jesus, Paul is saying that Jesus is coming to gather his people and to judge unbelievers and that there are only two types of people in this world. So do not leave this room unless you are absolutely certain this morning that when Jesus comes again, you will be among his people, that he will resurrect, reunite, gather to himself to reign with him forever and that you are not amongst those people who is the only other type of person that there is who he will judge and pour out his his vengeance upon. Don't be in that second group. Don't be in that second group. One more little thing here before we move on to the third truth is that just as a little aside, I don't want to get too into this because we can get into the weeds, but this is the text where I think many Christians have questions about Jesus' return, the nature of Jesus' return. Is it a sort of two-pronged event? Does he come to rapture believers and take them secretly out of this world that then would usher in a time of tribulation, usually uh, seven years, and then he comes again after that tribulation as a sort of Jesus' second coming part B. That's a very popular view. I think probably the majority of the American church believes that. I don't think that that's what this text uh, points us to. That's a new perspective on Jesus' return that has developed in the last 150 years or so. Um, Certainly faithful Christians uh, believe that. 
But I think there's a couple things in this text that point us to the fact that I think Jesus' return is a one-time event where he will come, resurrect his people, and judge unbelievers and establish his kingdom forever and ever and ever on the earth. One, I think, one evidence of that, just very quickly, is in the text that we just read in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Notice in uh, verse 6, uh, verse 7, it says that Jesus is coming and he will inflict vengeance in verse 8 on those that do not know God and that they will suffer eternal punishment and destruction. And this will happen when he comes again, this time when Jesus comes again. And at the same time that he comes again to judge is also the time that he gives relief to his people. So this relief to his people and the judgment of unbelievers, I think, happens simultaneously simultaneously at one time. And the other little point that I think we, we should see in the text is in the text that we read, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 17, this word to meet. In the Greek language, this word to meet means really a term. It was a very common term that would speak about like a, a dignitary or a king that had went off to battle and he had won a great victory and the citizens of his kingdom would go out of the city to meet him, to accompany him back into the city as a sort of victory parade. And I think that's what's going on here when this language where Paul says in verse 17 that we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord who is returning to descend to the earth to establish his kingdom and we will kind of go up to meet the Lord to come back in this victory parade of the victorious king back to the earth. But we could talk further about that. We actually just did a, a midweek fellowship on eschatology, the end times, where we looked much more deeply into that. Christians, faithful Christians, certainly believe different things on this. Don't want to get into the weeds, but just a little, a little aside about that, about that question that people often have about this text. So Jesus is coming in to, again to gather his people and judge unbelievers. That's point truth number two. Truth number three. Because Jesus rose again, Christians shall rise again. Because Jesus rose again, we shall be resurrected. So remember, Christians that have died, are, their bodies are in the ground, their souls are with God, and this text is promising us that there will be a reunion of our body and our soul. It will be the glorification of the believer. It's called in the Bible the resurrection of the saints. We, we see it here in our text that those who, verse 15, we declare to you by a word from the Lord that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise First, then we who are alive, who are left, will be, will be caught up together. There will be this reuniting. We will be glorified instantly and be made like Jesus. As Will read for us at the beginning of the service from Philippians 3, our lowly bodies... This is so wonderful. It's so spectacular. It's better than anything in Lord of the Rings or Narnia. Right? It's better. Our lowly bodies will be transformed and we will rise again. 
Paul is basing all of his hope on this truth. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians 15. You gotta, you gotta see this. Paul's putting all of his eggs in one basket. The hope and the certainty of the return of Christ and the resurrection of believers. So 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verse 12. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 12. Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. So he's saying if Jesus didn't really come back from the dead with real glorified victorious flesh, then everything that we're doing here is in vain. Everything is, Paul is pinning everything on the hope of the resurrection because Jesus has been raised. Verse 15, for we are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have also perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. So he's saying if, if Christianity and believing in Jesus is just a way for you to gather some principles by which you can navigate through these 80 years better, you are to be pitied. <laughs> he just went Mr. T on you, right? I pity the fool. And those of you that are under the age of 30 don't remember that because that, that is an American classic, Rocky. I don't know, Rocky 2, 3, 4, 5, whatever it is. Where Mr. T, okay, I've lost half of you that are under the, I forgot this is a young church. Paul is saying that if Christianity is just ethics for you, you should be pitied. But it's not. Jesus has risen from the dead and he's coming again to raise his people from the dead and reunite their bodies with their souls where they will reign with him forever and ever and ever. And that's truth number four. Let's read it. Truth number four from this text is that in the resurrection, our bodies will reunite with our souls and we shall be glorified and reign with Jesus forever. <laughs> Now those of you over the age of 40 are more excited about this than those of you that woke up this morning and had three bowls of Captain Crunch, will have fried food for lunch, and will finish off the day with half a gallon of ice cream, and you'll get up in the morning and you'll feel fine. Those of us that are over the age of 40 read this and we say, oh, praise God. When this broken down tent will one day be glorified. And this is the spectacular truth that we're going to read about here in more detail further on in 1 Corinthians 15. Is that, remember what happens, truth number one. Our bodies go into the ground at death. Our souls go immediately to be with the Lord in this sort of intermediate present heaven awaiting the final and full victory of Jesus when he will return again, judge unbelievers, and gather all of his people who have ever trusted in him, reunite the dead bodies of Christians who have died 
with their souls and instantly change those who are alive at that moment where our souls and our spirits will be unified, we will be glorified, and we will be like him. He will transform our lowly bodies and we will reign with him forever and ever and we shall be like him. Friends, that's the hope. Not just these 80 years, but forever with Jesus, like Jesus, reigning with Jesus forever and ever. Listen to how Paul explains it a little bit further on in 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse, let's look at verse 35 and 36 and then skip around a little bit. He's going to get specific about this resurrection state of Christians. I love it. He gets a little... It's a little antagonistic here, and I kind of like that about Paul. Verse 35, But someone will ask, How are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? Verse 36, You foolish person. <laughs> what you sow does not come to life until it, unless it dies. Remember, he had a little angst with the Corinthian church. They were doing stupid stuff, you know, acting crazy. So he's at the end of the letter, and he's, he's, he's just a little, he's a little frazzled. He's like, You foolish, Ugh, you're, I can't believe you're asking me this question. Come on. Verse 42, let's go to verse 42, 1 Corinthians 15. He's going to get into more detail about this resurrection state of the Christians. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. That's this body. What is raised is imperishable. That's the glorified body. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised the spiritual body. And by the way, spiritual body does not mean like we're, like we're, you know, angels floating around. Because remember, we shall be like Jesus. And Jesus rose from the grave with real glorified flesh. That's why he, John makes the very important point where he says to Thomas, put your hand in my hand, touch it. And then he had a meal with the disciples on the shore there where he actually ate food. So it's spiritual but glorified but real. Verse 45. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last man, Adam, meaning Jesus, became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. That's contrasting Adam and Jesus. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have been born of the image of the man of dust, meaning Adam, we were born in sin, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Verse 50. I tell you this, brothers. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, for nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. In other words, not all of us are going to die. Some of us are going to be alive when Jesus comes again. But we all shall be changed in the moment. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable. And we, meaning those of us who are alive when Jesus returns, who are in Christ, shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable body. And this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on the immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? So do you, no, it gets even better. If you, if you see it, you'd be clapping with this guy over here. It gets even better. 
Do you see this? The, the, the victory of God in the resurrection of the Son of God. He has turned our enemy death into our servant. So because Jesus defeated death on the cross, rose again, and he defeated sin, death, and all of its consequences, and has turned it upside down on its head. Now the thing that was bearing down on us is now the thing that merely serves as an entrance into our reign with Christ in our glorified body forever and ever and ever. And because of that, Paul can look mockingly into the face of death and taunt it and say, where's your sting, you punk? Jesus took you, punched you in the face, and won! And he is coming again to do all of this. So in light of that, we end with these, I think, very important and clear implications quickly. Two. Because of the resurrection, this certainty that Jesus is coming to glorify his people, unite their bodies, perfect them. And oh, by the way, I didn't spend any time just meditating on what those glorified bodies will be like. The Bible doesn't give us much detail about that. But <laughs> just spend some time this afternoon thinking about how glorious our existence will be when there, there will be like, oh, can you imagine? Can you imagine when there will be no more pain? Can you imagine, like, <laughs> can you imagine not just physical pain, but can you imagine when, like, the tug of the flesh to sin? You know, we all know that, right? And when that will be gone. And can you imagine when we will behold each other and we will all be so glorified and beautiful and radiant? And there will be deep appreciation for one another, but it won't be tainted by jealousy or sinful sexual urges. Can, can you, can, can, you know how free and awesome that will be? Like, <laughs> oh man. Eat that for lunch today rather than a chimichanga, right? So two implications. Because of the resurrection, this life really matters. And this seems counterintuitive, doesn't it? It seems like, and I think this is an error for us to say, okay, Brad, you've convinced me. We shouldn't leave for these 80 years. Actually, Paul convinced me and you just helped. We should not live for these 80 or 90 years. And we should be, you know, so oriented to the future that let's just forget about life here on earth, right? And, and, and like sometimes people say about really super spiritual Christians, they say they're so heavenly minded that they're of no earthly good. I think we've all maybe heard that. Well, I think Paul actually goes the other way with it. He's saying that when you get consumed with the life to come, then you finally can be of some earthly good. And that's the connection of the paragraph that we read before in verses 9 through 12. What does he say? Right before he talks about the resurrection, right before he talks about the future, listen to what he says to the Thessalonians in verses 9 through 12 of chapter 4. I'll read it again. 
Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you're doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more, and to aspire to live quietly, and to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands as we instructed you, so that, verse 12, you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. And right after that, he launches into this meditation about the future. So how do those two things connect? He's saying, because this is so true, and because there are only two types of people in the world, those that are in Christ who will live with him forever, those that are outside of Christ that when he comes again will be judged and banished and punished forever and ever and ever, because that is so real, make this life matter and be the type of people that God can use to point outsiders so that outsiders will become insiders. Do you see that? So these 80 years are not primary, but they matter more than we can even imagine. This life matters because of the resurrection. The second implication then points us the other way. Is that because of the resurrection, we are free to give this life away. Because this life is not all that there is. When Paul is writing to the when he's speaking to the Ephesian church at the end of Acts, he's speaking to the elders there at the church. And listen to what he says in Acts chapter 24, Acts chapter 20, verse 24. He says, But I do not count my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. What Paul is saying is, I am so consumed with the certainty of my future that I can give away, I can let go, I can unlock my death grip of this life and let it go. And God can use me in spectacular ways. This past week, Springer and I went to a conference that was about the work of Christians, a particular group of Christians, in the Middle East doing campus ministry in Muslim countries primarily in the United Arab Emirates. And it was an incredibly, incredibly encouraging and convicting time for, for both of us, I think, as we sat there listening to these people who are ministering in these dangerous lands, willing to give their lives away, willing to, as we, as we sang this morning in a mighty fortress, did you catch those lines? Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also, the body they may kill, but his truth abideth still. There's these people that, that are so consumed with the reality of the future, the reality of Jesus' return, the incredible promises that go with it, that they're willing to risk everything to minister in a hostile land where they may be executed because of it. Because of the resurrection, we are free to give this life away. A couple years ago, I came across this quote by this, I believe he's a Catholic theologian, so certainly there's many things that he would probably believe and say that I would not agree with. His name is Peter Kreft, and he wrote this, these beautiful words. I think it's a wonderful meditation about heaven. And listen, listen to this quote, and we'll, we'll end with this. Think about this in the context of the resurrection. Now suppose death, now suppose both death 
and hell were utterly defeated. Now, of course, they are, right? He's, just, he's wanting to get us to think in these terms. Now, suppose both death and hell were utterly defeated. Suppose the fight was fixed. Suppose God took you on a crystal ball trip into your future and you saw with indubitable certainty that despite everything, your sin, your smallness, your stupidity, you could have for free, for the asking, your whole crazy heart's deepest desire. Heaven. Eternal joy. Now, I'd want to put in a little parenthesis there. I'd want to help Peter out on his theology a little bit. It's not just heaven we're going for. It's Christ. To be with Christ. It's to be with Him. We'll refer to that in his prayer when he's talking about it. It's not just heaven. It's to be with God. But suppose... Suppose that you could have free for the asking your whole heart's crazy, deepest desire, heaven, eternal joy, to be with Jesus. Listen to what he says then. Would you not return fearless and singing? What can earth do to you if you are guaranteed heaven or Christ? To fear the worst earthly loss would be like a millionaire fearing the loss of a penny less a scratch on a penny. So do you see his logic? Is that if we, if we see the resurrection, if we, if we grab hold of the unbelievable, beautiful, unimaginable, but true and believable by the Spirit of God promises of the resurrection, and we see it, and we savor it, and we stake our lives on it, would we not return back into this life fearless and singing, ready to make much of these 80 years, and ready to give this life away for the glory of God and for our joy. Friends, that's the resurrection hope that Paul is pointing the Christian to. And that's the resurrection hope that he bids any unbeliever in this room to come to and trust in. Not to figure out with certainty, but to look to and be captured by and behold and believe in. Let's pray. Father, as we spend some time now responding to your word and worship, I pray that you would help us see this. I pray for my brothers and sisters in this room that you would snap us out of our, of our fog that we so often walk in where we are so occupied by trivial things. And it causes us fear and anxiety and strain and stress and sleepless nights and nervous stomachs and anxious days. Let us take all of those things and let us lift our heads and see the certainty and the beauty and the victory of the resurrection. And let us behold that and let us return to this present reality fearless and singing ready to give our lives away ready to serve you ready to fight sin ready to resist temptation because because there's glory and beauty and joy and satisfaction that awaits us which will make everything that tugs at our flesh in this life pale in comparison let us return fearless and singing. God, make us that type of people who are so otherworldly that we are, 
finally good for the world. And for my friends that are in this room who've not yet trusted in Christ, maybe their hearts become calloused or maybe they've, maybe they've been worshiping the idol of their own sin and how they think it's worse than anybody else's and it's, it's caused them to be awash in self-soothing feelings of self-guilt. Let them finally, Lord, turn from their idolatry, turn from their pride and let them see the beauty and the hope and the, the unabashed glory and joy that you call us to. God, today, let them see that. Not, not to have every little argument finally and fully answered because if, if, if that's what they're waiting on, it'll never come in this life because we're called to walk by faith, not rational arguments. And so God, would you, would you cause unbelievers in this room that have, been, that have been held back for whatever reason from seeing this today, would today be the day of salvation for them? And would they turn from their own hope, their own sin, their own rebellion, and would they put their hope in the coming victorious King? And friends, if that's you right now, do it. Do it if you're, if you're hearing me and if that's making sense to you. I believe that's evidence that God is taking your dead heart and He's breathing life into it and He's giving you the ability to put your hope and your trust and your faith in Christ. What He did in His life which was perfect and without sin, and his death, which was sacrificial and sufficient to atone for God's judgment against you, and his resurrection, by which he defeated judgment and sin and death against you, and now bids you to come and put your hope in him. Friends, if that is you, if you are that person that I've described, you don't need to repeat words or fill out a card. You need to Turn away from your sin and put your hope in Christ and say, Jesus, I trust in you. Save me. And he will answer that prayer. In fact, he gave you the ability to even utter it. And so for even you saying that, I believe is like evidence of the fact that God has given you life. So breathe. do it even now. And don't leave this room if that's you, friend, without speaking to somebody that you know to be a Christian and ask them to pray with you and help you in your life, your new life with King Jesus. Father, would you do these things for your glory and our joy in Jesus' name. Amen.